Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. I came across something recently that I thought was hilarious. Elementary school children were asked a question, a series of questions actually, and imagine this, these are children in elementary school. They were asked, why do we have moms? And here are some of the answers that were given. Why do we have mothers? Mostly, they say, to clean the house. (laughs) What ingredients are mothers made of? They had to get their start from men's bones. Then I think they used string mostly. (laughs) Why do you have your mother and not some other mom? Because we're related. What kind of little girl was your mom? My mom has always been my mom and none of that other stuff. (laughs) Or get this one. They say she used to be nice. What did mom need to know about dad before she married him? His last name. She had to know his background, like is he a crook? Or does he get drunk on beer? Does he make at least $800 a year? Did he say no to drugs and yes to chores? Who's the boss at your house? Mom. You can tell by room inspection. She sees the stuff under the bed. What's the difference between moms and dads? Moms know how to talk to teachers without scaring them. Dads are taller and stronger, but moms have all the real power because that's who you got to ask if you want to sleep over at a friend's house. What does your mom do in her spare time? Mom doesn't have any spare time. (laughs) Or, what does your mom do with her spare time? To hear her tell it, she pays bills all day long. (laughs) Well, these kids hear a lot more than you think they do. They hear more of the messages, more of the sermons, more of the instruction that you give them than we often give them credit for. Most importantly, they're watching every move in your home. Children are going to become adults and adults will marry and they'll bring with them all of the baggage that they received in the context of your home life. I know as we come to the end of this legacy series, we come to one of the most important principles. I started this series way back when laying out the principle of developing a worldview, learning how to think biblically. And I end this series on this note. I believe I want my children and my grandchildren to model in their marriages the relationship that Christ has with his church. Now, I know we live in a very dysfunctional world. As we sit here today, the nuclear family has experienced a nuclear disaster. No longer is it one man and one woman for one lifetime, 
But now we live in a fraction, a fractioned society, and children have been somewhat marginalized. Many of you sitting here right now are in second and third marriages. Divorce is commonplace, even in the church. And we have come to believe in this society that if you just don't get along, if you're incompatible, or if you think you married the wrong person, or if you just can't get along, that the best thing you can do for your children is to divorce. And somehow or another, we have convinced ourselves that children are not at all affected by divorce. Somehow they're resilient enough to get over it. Now, I don't say this in order to shame anyone or to imply guilt, or I know there are situations biblically where God has allowed divorce, but only because of the hardness of heart. You'll remember when Jesus was asked that question, he took us back to the very beginning and made this comment. He says, from the beginning it was not so. For this cause will a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife, and the two of them shall become one. So God's perfect plan is one man and one woman in one lifetime united under the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know sitting here today, there are many of you who do not qualify. And I know that somehow or another, a message like this might cause you some pain. But I would hope you would encourage at least this preacher in this regard. Although the template is broken, the template still stands. God has not changed his mind. The template of marriage still stands. No matter what we have done with it, the template of marriage still stands. That is why it is so important that we send the proper messages to our children. The way our children will marry and the way they will interact will be largely based upon what they have observed in the context of your relationship to your husband or wife. They are picking up a lot more information than you think they are. And there is every reason for you as parents to largely concern yourself with what your children are seeing and what your children are hearing and what they are experiencing. We must strive to perfection with the template. It is hard work to build a marriage. It requires significant sacrifice on everybody's part. And one of the great principles we can teach our children, and hopefully they will learn it and apply it better than we have, is how to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and how to reverence your husband as the church reverences Christ. The dynamic of the relationship between Christ and his church, out of all the relationships or, or uh, analogies he could have chosen, he chose marriage. In Psalm 45, we read in the superscription that this was a wedding psalm. It was to be sung at weddings. And as we go through the descriptions of the various characteristics of the bride and the bridegroom, it becomes quickly apparent that this could not have applied to Solomon or to David or to any other king. It is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that points us to Jesus Christ. It is a psalm that shows us the dynamic of the relationship between Christ who is the bridegroom 
and the church who is his bride. And so when we look at that model, we need to begin to ask ourselves questions about whether or not our homes are reflecting that kind of a relationship. Our homes need to be a safe haven. Our children need to know that their homes are a safe place to be, a refuge, a place where they can go when their fears are great, where there is danger, where they can hide, if you will, in the shelter of the protective care of their mothers and their fathers. The Bible speaks of marital unfaithfulness to God as spiritual harlotry. When we abandon our faith, when we walk away from the Lord, when we do not obey his commands, he compares that to a harlot similar to what he set up for us in the book of Hosea. That we harlot, we prostitute ourselves after other gods and we abandon the marital faithfulness that we ought to have. Contrarywise, he paints a glorious picture of how a marriage can indeed be successful. Now listen closely. I don't believe you have to be Christians in order to have a successful marriage in the sense that the world defines success. There are many couples out there today who do not know the Lord, who have been married many, many years. But I want to categorically tell you that apart from divine cause and apart from the fact that Christ is to be the center of the home, if there is no personal relationship with Jesus Christ, no marriage, no matter how good it appears to be on the outside, no matter how much it measures up, quote, success-wise to the world's standards, apart from Jesus Christ, you can never, ever have the fulfillment in marriage that God designed you for. There is a sense in which a marital relationship is much deeper than a man and a woman or a man and a woman in a physical relationship, or a man and a woman bearing children. There's something much deeper. And that is why this illustration of Christ to his church is so paramount and so central in the scriptures. There is a sense in which, as Christians, you and your wife are related beyond marriage. You are first and foremost, if you know the Lord, brother and sister in Christ. That is why there is no marriage in heaven, nor are we given in marriage in heaven, because there is a much deeper relationship as a man walks closer to his God, and as a woman draws closer to her God, they will inevitably become deeply rooted in each other. There will be a oneness that forms as the result of the centrality of Christ in the home. That is why people outside of Christ can only experience the success of their marriages to the degree that the world defines success. And so just as there is a spiritual harlotry, there is a marital harlotry. Just as there is a marital love between Christ and his church, so there is a physical, emotional, and spiritual love between a man and his wife. Christ has loved you Christ has loved us with such a great love that we are constrained by that love. 
And our homes ought to be constrained by a love for our spouses that literally consumes the thoughts of men. That is why John Calvin uh, translated uh, verse 1 of Psalm 45 this way. The psalm says, my heart is stirred by a noble theme. As I recite my verses for the king, my, my tongue is a pen of a skillful writer. And then he goes on in the next verses to define the relationship between Christ and his church. John Calvin translated it this way. My heart boils over with a good matter. He cannot contain himself. And just as nothing and nobody should ever compete with our love for God, so there ought to never be any other man or any other woman that can compete with the love of your spouse. That's why verse 2 says, you are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Our homes are to be a place where battles are fought, not against each other, but where there is preparation made for life, where our children are learning life causes and life roots, where they are learning how to live within the context of a biblical worldview as they learn in, your, in the context of your home. I like to put it this way. I want my children to fail. We raise them to fail. Now, don't be too surprised by that. We raise them to fail forward. And we raise them to fail forward in our presence. That is where the teaching occurs. When we fail forward, and they're inevitably going to fail, all of your children will inevitably fail. You want them to fail forward so that you might train them and disciple them and teach them from those basic failures how to live a victorious life in Christ. You don't want them to hide their failures. You want to see their failures so that you might be able not to condemn them, but to teach them. That is why verse 3 says, Gird your sword on your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously. Catch this language? It's the picture of somebody arming themselves for battle. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Here is a home. Here is a body life, if you will, that is armed for battle. We talked last week about the whole armor of God. The need to hold the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, firmly before your children so that they might see it's not you they contend with. It's their God they contend with. You hold forth the word of truth. You teach them how to put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. You teach them how to prepare themselves to march into war and prepare themselves to protect themselves, if you will, at those most vulnerable points. That's what the armor's all about. But above all, you must take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And our children must be raised in the context of the Word of God. When you discipline them, it must be by the Word of God. When they sin, it must be pointed out where they failed in the context of the Word of God. When they succeed, you must teach them how to deflect all the glory to their God 
And on and on it goes. Why? Because you and I in our homes model in a microcosmic way the great relationship that Christ has with his church. And just as Jesus is exalted to the highest place by his father, so we are to exalt our spouses to the highest place among men, and that includes your children. That's why verse six says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews one verses eight and nine references that very verse and tells us who that king is. Who that person is where he says in verse six, your throne, O God, who's he speaking of there? Hebrews 1 says, about the son, he says, and then he quotes Psalm 45, 6. You see, this is a psalm about Christ and about Christ's relationship to his church. So men, we're familiar with Ephesians 5. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard these passages. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. By the way, women, when you study that passage clearly, it elevates womanhood to a position much higher than you can ever imagine this world and its philosophy teaching you. The reason I say that is because you are compared in your relationship to your husband to Christ's relationship to the Father. There can be no higher comparison made. And so when we study these passages, young people, when you hear that you are to submit yourselves to godly authority, you are to come under the protective care of godly authority in the home. When you see the dynamic of leadership and submission that the Bible speaks of, how can we miss it? How can we ever think that we could miss it? We are to exalt our spouses to the highest place among men, just as Christ has exalted his church to the highest place among men. There is nothing more precious in the sight of God. There is nothing more beautiful in the sight of God than his church. There is nothing more important to him than his church. There is nothing that he would give himself, more of himself for than anything else than the church. Uh, Psalm 45 refers to his church as companions. We are his companions. Elsewhere, we are called his brethren. We're called his friends. We're called his heirs. We're called his children. We're called his sheep. And on and on the list goes. Simply stated, friends, it means this. There are not enough words to describe how God feels about you. There is nothing that you can say or feel that can somehow measure the love of God. That's why Paul speaks of God's love as height and breadth and depth, that there is no definition for it. You can't go high enough. You can't go broad enough. You can't go deep enough. You can't go wide enough and somehow quantitatively define the love of God. I know as parents, you've probably done this with your children. And until your children have children, they won't really understand this. You'll say to your children, how much does daddy love you? This much, this much, this much. 
And we go on and on until we say, it's way beyond this because we can't define it. That's mere human love. Imagine how great the love of the Father is. Imagine how great the love of God is. I was up bright and early this morning, probably around 6 o'clock or so, sitting out in our backyard. Our backyard is like an aviary. I said if we're ever going to get bird flu, we're going to get it in our own backyard. <laughs> but just thinking about this message, and I was overwhelmed by the concept of the mercy of God. I said, Lord, I keep doing the same things again and again and again. I can't imagine that I would ever have the stuff it would take to forgive someone who hurt me in the same way that I've hurt you again and again and again. And then you quickly realize the love of God cannot be measured. The mercy of God has no end. His compassions are forever. And he turns to us as husbands and he says, that is how I want you to love your wife. That is how I want you to love your husband. That is what I want your family to look like. I want to see Christ at the center of your home. And I want to see Christ adored and worshiped and glorified so that you can see your wife and you can see your husband and yes, you can see your parents through the filter of the cross of Jesus Christ, that great love that far transcends any human love. How much does God love you? This much? How big and vast is the love of God? You know, when your children grow up and have children, suddenly they realize what you meant when you said, how much does daddy love you? They didn't really understand it then. But when they have their own children, they begin to realize and comprehend how deep their parental love was because they're beginning to sense the love of Christ. You see, this is the way we ought to feel about our families. This is the way we ought to feel about our marriages. Instead of calling them dummies who will never amount to anything or idiots or the cause of you entering an early grave, they are your children, they are your spouse, they are your lover, they are your best friend, they are your completer, they are your confidant, they are your fine china. Is that what your children see in your home? Is that what your kids are experiencing from the time they're in the cradle? No, from the time they're in the womb. We used to pray with our kids in utero. We didn't wait until they were born, they were already people. They're already there just a few inches of skin separating them from the real world. And we would pray for them. We would pray for them in the cradle. We would hold their hands in the cradle and pray over them and for them. We would pray for their spouses, who they would marry, whether they would marry the right person, whether they will learn from mom and dad what it looks like to have a godly marriage, whether they will accept the discipline. And sometimes as parents, we think that somehow or another we've done our job when our children turn this magical age of 18. Somehow or another, not the scriptures, but the culture defines manhood and womanhood. I came across a survey recently by the Barna organization where he did a nationwide survey of parents. The Barna group offers some very surprising insights 
into the outcomes that parents are most eager to achieve in their children, the qualities that they believe are most important for parents to have in order to be effective, and some of the critical choices and trade-offs they make in their child-rearing efforts. They were asked this question, what makes a parent successful? What makes a parent successful? Each of two qualities was listed by one-third of all parents as contributing significantly to effective raising of children. 36% said having patience is necessary to be effective, while 32% indicated that demonstrating love was indispensable. The next most frequently cited attribute of effective parenting were enforcing discipline and being understanding. Now listen to this. Having a significant faith commitment and an identifiable set of religious beliefs was mentioned by just one out of every five parents as an ingredient to successful parenting. It gets worse. Smaller numbers of parents listed elements such as being a praying person, 4%. 4%. Having integrity or good character, 1%. As significant characteristics of successful parenting. What was the most desirable outcome they wanted for their kids? When these people were surveyed, parents described what they feel are the most important outcomes they are devoted to helping their children experience. By far, the top-rated outcome was what? Getting a good education. That's what makes you a successful parent. If your kids have a degree, now, please do not misunderstand me. I believe in the value of education. I believe education is very important, but we have been sold a bill of goods. The bill of goods is that education measures success. That somehow or another, if you have five degrees, you're more successful than someone who has four or three or two or one and certainly more successful than one who has none. But may I suggest to you, you can have five degrees and not be wise. You can be a high school dropout and have the wisdom of God. Somehow or another, we measure success in this culture differently than God does. Helping the child to feel loved was the second most frequently mentioned outcome, 24%, followed by enabling them to have a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. 22%. Don't get too excited about it. You'll see in a moment why. They want their children, at least 22% of them, which means that 78% of them do not. Suffice it to say, we want, or at least some of us want our children to have a meaningful relationship to Christ. But stay tuned. Among the less common building blocks that parents mentioned were having a success of belonging or connection, being and feeling safe, and helping to establish appropriate moral values, the latter one being 4%. Now, what are the trade-offs that these parents are willing to make? And this is one of the most eye-popping, eye-opening portions of this research. And it's related to the choices that parents are willing 
to make, the trade-offs, if you will, to accomplish what they call success. In the first, parents were asked if they were more likely to battle their children over every issue that emerged in order to establish control and appropriate choices, or instead to limit those battles to particular issues the parents deemed to be significant. 77% of the parents took the pick your fights approach, while only one out of eight, 13% felt it was important to interact on every issue. Now it sounds good to some of you, that may even sound reasonable. Pick your fights, pick your battles, major on the majors, forget about the minors, but may I suggest to you, it is the minors that go unaddressed, that create the majors that cannot be addressed. That is why when your children come home and you're interacting with your children, every aspect of their life is important. Even those minute details, why? Because you're teaching them in the minors how to develop a worldview and think the right way and think biblically if they can't learn how to think the right way when it comes to the clothes they wear. How are they going to be able to think the right way when they're offered drugs? You need to teach your children in the minors the responsible biblical behavior that God expects of them. I think it's sad that three-quarters of the parents want to pick their battles and leave all those other things that they consider to be minor infractions unchecked. You know, whenever we were watching a TV program and uh, something came on that was questionable, we tried to teach our children, what's wrong with what you just saw? What did you just see? Tell us what's wrong with what you just saw. I want to tell you, that's hard work. It's easier to click the channel. It's hard work to sit down and say, now let me teach you how to think. Let me show you what a biblical worldview looks like. Let me teach you how to think. Now here's a second situation, was whether the parent tells the child that the Bible teaches moral absolutes that must always be obeyed, no matter what the situation is, or instead it teaches that there are no moral absolutes so that the child must be prepared to make good choices in every situation without any absolute guidelines. Are there moral absolutes or aren't there? Every situation applies or doesn't it? Parents were evenly divided on this. 43% said they teach there are some moral absolutes. 45% said they teach there are no such absolutes. Another trade-off was related to the child's media exposure. What they're allowed to watch, what they're allowed to listen to, what goes into their ears. Do you know what's going into your child's ears? Have you ever sat down, mom and dad, and watched MTV? Sit down and watch it. Your home is being invaded by a very serious enemy and a very serious worldview. And you are allowing your children to feed on that garbage and somehow think it's cute, it's teenagerish. Do you know what's going into their ears? Do you know what's going into their minds? Do you know what they're listening to? Do you know what they're watching? A majority of parents, 56%, said they gave their youngsters general guidelines about the amount and quality of media they were allowed to access and then let the children regulate their media intake by themselves. 
One third of all parents, 36%, strictly limited the amount and quality of TV music and other media, TV music and other media that the children were allowed to access. By more than two to one margin, they define success as having done the best they can do, regardless of the outcome. I did the best I could. Did you? Or do you think you did? Did you really do the best you could? Did you do the hard work of parenting? Did you labor in prayer over that child? Did you surround that child with godly people? Did you choose your child's friends? Did you interact with them about how to think on not just the majors, but the minors? Do you protect them with the sword? Did you do the best you could? Somehow or another, we think that if we feel good about our, our parenting skills, then it must be right. It must be right. In studying these findings, Barna made some conclusions. Listen to this. This is the sad part. I told you earlier about 22% want their children to have a personal relationship with Christ. Barna says, quote, you might expect that parents who are born-again Christians would take a different approach to raising their children than did parents who did not commit their lives to Christ. But our survey found that that was rarely the case. Barn explained, for instance, we found that the qualities born-again parents say an effective parent must possess, the outcomes they hope to facilitate in the lives of their children, and the media monitoring process in the household was indistinguishable from the approach taken by parents who are not born again. Born-again parents were twice as likely as others to teach their children that there are certain moral absolutes they should obey. However, even on that matter, less than six out of ten born-again parents took such a position. Only three out of ten born-again parents included the salvation of their child in the list of the critical parenting expectations. He noted, parents cannot force or ensure that their kids become followers of Christ, but for that emphasis not to be even on the radar screen of most Christian parents is a significant reason why most Americans never embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior. We know that parents, he says, still have a huge influence on the choices their children make, and we also know that most people either accept Christ while they are young or not at all. The fact that most Christian parents overlook this critical responsibility is one of the biggest challenges to the Christian church. He concludes by saying, garbage in, garbage out. There's no magic that suddenly changes the young person from what they were trained to be in their formative years into a model Christian once they get older. Some have gone as far as to say the personality of a child is formed by five years of age. Beyond that, it's uphill. You don't see many 50, 60, 70-year-olds converting to Christ, do you? You don't see many, or you see less 30, 40, and 50-year-olds, and less 20 and 30-year-olds. You see, the more, the older you get, the older you get, the more difficult it is for someone to be converted. Why? because their personalities and what they have taken in in the home has now taken root. Let me summarize and close. I say to you men, and I say to you ladies, the family is like the church. The church is like the family. 
And in the church, we must give priority to kingdom building. As in the home, you must give priority to kingdom building. It's not your crown you're looking to put jewels in. It's not your reward. Oh, yes, they will rise up and call you blessed when you do it right. But the real blessing comes from seeing your children do it better than you did it and their children getting it better than they got it. The family, like the church, must remain loyal to each other. I am saddened almost every day, not just in the context of our own church life, but as I interact with other brothers around other churches who are leading their churches, when repeatedly we hear this, I invested myself in so-and-so for years. I thought they were my friend. I thought they were my disciple. I thought they were loyal. And they just, for some reason, pack up their bags and walk away. You know why? Because we don't believe this is a conscripted group. We believe this is a volunteer group. And what does that say to your children? When your church makes mistakes, and we will, especially at change points along the way, you don't treat your teenager the same way you did a five-year-old. You change along the way. Churches change along the way. And at those change points, the criticisms begin to fly. And what does it say to your kids when you just pack up your bags and leave your family? And I call the church a family. This is your family. This is where you get your meat. This is where you get your instruction. This is the church that you have decided is your church. What message does it send your kids when you treat it like the Elks Club or the Moose Lodge? What message does it send about the staying power of change and the need to be faithful to those who have been faithful to you? I've seen pastors weep. I've wept. When people you've put years of investment into see you do one or two things wrong or five or six things wrong or 10 or 12 things wrong, my wrongs have to be multiplied. I'm in root numbers. And we just walk away like it doesn't matter. The family, like the church, must be discipled. Men, you must manage your households. By demonstrating love toward your wife in the same way that Christ has demonstrated his love to you. By teaching your family a biblical worldview. By making provision and by providing protection. One of the qualifications for an elder is the same qualification for a dad. You know what it is? An elder must be the husband of but one wife. What that does not mean is he must be married. You can be single and be an elder. What it does not mean is that he was never divorced because there are biblical grounds for divorce. What it does mean is this, literally translated, an elder must be a one-woman man. And men, you must be a one-woman man. There should be no other woman on the face of this earth that can compete with your wife's love or your love. Women, you must nurture your families. I believe, and you may disagree with me, but here again, you're wrong. 
I believe that the woman, the mother, sets the temperature of the home. If you don't believe that, find a home where the mother has died and ask yourself what the temperature of that home looks like. I have 11 grandchildren and they refer to coming over to our house as we're going to Grammys. And I'll tease them and say, what about granddad? We're going to Grammys. This is Grammy's home. She sets the temperature. The mother is the heart, the heartbeat, the pulse of the home. And you ladies set that temperature. You must recognize there is no higher calling anywhere. I don't care if you get 12 figures. There is no higher calling in life than being a mother. And raising godly children who will know, love, and fear God. You are the ones who will teach your children to communicate on more than a cliched level. You know your husbands aren't going to do it. You know that, ladies, don't you? How hard it is to get men to communicate beyond how are you? How you doing? What's going on? Did you have a good day? And your children come home from school and what do they say? Have you had a good day? Yeah, I had a good day. What went on today? I don't know. I don't know. Moms, you set that temperature. If your child says he had a good day, you want to know five ways in which the day was good so that you are now getting into the heart of that child. Children, you must learn to submit to godly authority. You live in a culture that tells you to buck that authority. My generation made you. And our generation stunk at it. My generation was the generation of the 60s, the revolutionists, the anarchists, those who did not submit to anyone's authority, disenchanted by the world, never seeing the world in the context of a sovereign God. And we raised our children to do the same thing. Now we have generations of children we call X and Y and Z and all those other things because we can't even define them. You know where it begins? By submitting your heart to Christ as a young person and then submitting your heart to your parents in godly recognition of their biblical authority. You must learn, young person, to stand alone in how you dress, in what you listen to, in who you make your friends, in the activities you engage in. There are times when the whole world is going to drop down on their knees and worship the icons of Isis and Sophia and all the other false gods. They're all going to drop. You're going to look around and you're going to realize I'm the only one standing. And you might become afraid. Don't be. Take courage. Take heart in knowing that when you stand alone for Jesus Christ, you stand alone with the majority. Godly homes. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn how to model their homes after the relationship of Christ to his church. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.